Tips on choosing, buying, selling, and taking care of your car, truck, or SUV. AAA just conducted a couple interesting surveys and found out that most American consumers are pretty skeptical about some of the new safety technology available in cars. 72%, for example, say they would not trust self-parking technology to parallel park their car. Even more people say they would not feel comfortable in a self-driving car. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Main Calling, we'll discuss the results of this survey and what it means for the auto industry and drivers with John Paul of AAA. We'll also find out about new ratings of the best family cars from Jamie Page Deaton of U.S. News and World Report. And we'll get tips on buying and selling your car from David Leach, the author of a new State of Maine guide for consumers. Plus, of course, your car questions. Main Calling is next, but first, this news update. From the MPBN studios, I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Main Calling. On a day like today, you'd be forgiven for thinking of trading in your car, truck, or SUV for a convertible. But just how practical would that be? And speaking of practicality, which car or SUV is best for a family looking for three rows of seating? If you're in the market for a new set of wheels, we have help for you. And for those who are not in the market for a new set of wheels, those who are hoping to hold on to their car for a while... We will take questions about car upkeep today on Maine Calling. In the studio with me, David Leach. He's principal examiner with the Maine Bureau of Consumer Credit Protection and co-author of that agency's Down Easter Guide, Automobile Buying and Financing. On the line with us, Jamie Page Deaton. She's automotive editor for U.S. News and World Report. And John Paul, spokesperson for AAA Northeast and a master mechanic. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Hi, great to be here. (laughs) Of course, we'd like to hear from you. What car questions do you have? Are you in the market for a new car? Do you have financing questions? Our phone number, 1-800-399-3566. 1-800-399-3566. You can send an email to talk at mpbn.net, tweet at Main Calling, or post to the Main Calling Facebook page. David, I suspect that you don't get a car from the special automotive pool for automotive writers each week, but Jamie and John do, so I'm going to start the program by asking them what they're driving. John, Paul, what are you driving this week? Well, I actually just gave it up, and it kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. It was a 2016 Chevy Malibu, and I don't think I've been a big Malibu fan since the 70s or maybe even the 60s, but this latest Malibu was actually quite nice. It uh, was roomy. It was comfortable. It handled well. I... I was prepared to be disappointed with the little 2-liter turbocharged engine, but it had plenty of zip. It uses an 8-speed automatic transmission. I found it to be a very comfortable car to drive, and fuel economy-wise, I was averaging a good solid 30 miles per gallon just about all the time, and good-sized trunk, just a comfortable car to drive, and uh, I was actually quite pleased with it. And at first, I thought it was going to be, ah, it was just going to be okay. Uh, The one thing that did scare me away a little bit was... um, uh, the uh, standard vehicle price was about $30,000. The uh, as-tested price was close to $34,000, which seemed like a lot of money. I'm sure there'll be some some uh, little bit of negotiation available for the, that pricing as the car becomes a little bit more popular. But the car has great style, good handling, quiet. Uh, to get maximum performance, though, you do have to use premium fuel, which hurts a little bit. But overall, really quite quite a nice car. Jamie Page Deaton, we know what you're driving because we posted a picture on our MPBN Main Calling Facebook page of you in the trunk of a bright yellow car. Tell me about that car. Yeah, that is the all-new 2016 Chevrolet Camaro. Um, and, you know, I have to be honest with you, I, I don't get to test a lot of sports cars because I'm always worried about getting car seats in the back. Um, but, man, is that a lot of fun. It is truly a great American muscle car. I mean, you talk about going fast in a straight line. Um, you know, it really just leaves a great smile on your face. And, you know, I am a five foot three woman and I sit comfortably in the trunk. I actually um, decided to do that after I went to pick up a couple of little chairs for my kids and noticed, I thought at first, well, I'm going to have to put these in the passenger cabin. And then I realized, actually, that trunk goes back pretty far. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of a dose of practicality to it. You're not just going to be bombing around you know, doing drag races in it. It is really, Chevy has done a nice job with the redesign. Um, It's got great engine power. The transmission, you know, like the Malibu, it's got an eight-speed transmission. 
very responsive, very smooth. Um, and then it's something that you might not expect from just a muscle car is that the interior is actually very nice. Um, the seats are comfortable. They cradle you, hold you in place during cornering. Um, and it's got some really nice tech features as well, like Apple CarPlay, a great touchscreen infotainment system. Um, and it, of course, has actually surprisingly good safety features, another thing that you wouldn't necessarily think of with a muscle car. Um, but it's got, you know, blind spot uh, warning, which is actually really helpful because it does have um, some really thick roof pillars. So, you know, changing lanes without a blind spot warning system, and it could be a little bit tricky. Um, but, you know, Chevy's thought of a lot of things with it and really turned out a nice car. Wow. Well, David Leach, bringing you into the conversation, the Maine Bureau of Consumer Credit Protection just came out with its updated guide to buying and selling cars. I think a lot of people are intimidated by the process, especially when the price tag is so high. You know, we're regularly throwing around numbers that are above $30,000, $40,000 on this program. So from your perspective, as you have talked to consumers over the years, what is the biggest and most important thing that you think people don't understand? I think what they don't understand is that the auto buying process is a process. It shouldn't be like with the marketing hurry sale ends today. It's check your finances, check the APRs, the local APRs of the financial institutions that are out there. And as the two car gurus would probably say, get online and, and look at the blogs, look at the reviews of the cars. And so now in you know in 2016, we have all this information. So it should never be, you know, I was 24 years old. I was out buying lights from my old house in Hollowell, and there was a car dealership, and we drove over to it, and two or three hours later, we bought a car. That's not how to do it. So it's getting Mainers to understand that it's a process, and that's why we wrote this booklet. If someone hasn't bought a car in 10, 12, 15 years, what's different now that they should understand? I know a lot of people who are listening today try to hold on to their cars, and it's a whole new world than it was just a decade ago, isn't it? One thing, the big shock is the sticker. You know, if you're, if you're talking new, um, that $10,000 or $12,000 brand new sedan is now $30,000. And like Pinocchio's nose, uh, the financing has gone from a typical 48-month loan to 60, to 72, to 84, to 96 months. And so people have to understand that, yes, cars are made, cars and trucks are made better now. They last longer than when our parents had cars. But you also don't want to finance something for longer than its useful life. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, you know, buying a car is like piling an airplane. And you want to take a few lessons first in this book helps get people on the ground. All right. And we'll be sure and post on our MPB and Main Calling Facebook page a link to how you can get a hold of this um, booklet. You can get a hard copy of it. But I also noticed online that you can. it's just online, too, if you want to get the PDF version. So um, it's www.credit.main.gov, and we will put that on the MPBN Main Calling Facebook page as well. John Paul, I want to talk to you about a couple surveys that AAA has recently done. Um, we mentioned I mentioned them at the beginning of the program. They're looking at how people are embracing or not embracing the new safety features and self-driving cars. What did you find, and were you surprised by it? Well, we were a little bit surprised, I guess, but we shouldn't have been that surprised. One of them was self-parking features. And self-parking features, uh, we looked at two different demographic groups, and one of them, it seems as if the younger drivers actually felt that they could park quicker and better than some of the self-parking cars. And some of the older drivers didn't necessarily trust the way it was going to work and got a little bit a little bit baffled by it all. And as somebody who, whenever I drive a car with self-parking, I always try, try it out and see how good it works. The technology I'll admit, isn't 100% there. I used one to uh, perpendicular park uh, not that long ago. It was actually a Range Rover. Uh, it put me in the parking space, but I couldn't get out the driver's door because it brought me too close to the car next to me. Uh, another one I tried, it parallel parked, but it parallel parked so close to the curb, the tire was up really touching on the edge of the curb and I was worried about damaging a wheel. So in a lot of cases they work well, some cases not so much. And when it comes to self-driving cars, um, people are a little bit timid about that and probably the best example of self-driving that you can get behind the wheel now and try is the Tesla. And it is a little bit unique. It, it 
puts you dead center in the middle of the, of the roadway, which feels a little uncomfortable to most people. Most people tend to go a little bit left on a multi-lane road, so they have more room between them and the right side of the car, so it puts them right in the middle. It does react to things uh, very quickly, but you sort of find yourself hovering over the wheel, holding on to the wheel. You don't really let it drive itself, and to me, that's not the... That's not the way I want to self-drive a car. I, I either want a car that I can take a nap on the way to work or go out and drive it, one or the other. And and the idea that I sort of have to, have to uh, I don't trust the system enough to work. And uh, an engineer from Volvo told me a long time ago that self-driving cars, they really want to make them about as smart as a horse. So in other words, if, a, if you were riding a horse and you started to do something stupid, the horse would stop. And that's what they really want the self-driving car to do. And the other fear I have is people will forget how to drive. And we've already started to see that in the airline industry that, you know, originally there were three pilots on a plane. Now there's two. And then when it comes to uh, emergency maneuvers, you know, not everybody's Captain Sullenberger. Mm. Jamie Page Deaton, breaking news from the U.S. News and World Report today. You uh, have a new study out just this morning, and it's the best cars for families. Were there any surprises in this uh, analysis that you all did? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest surprise is, you know, if, if you're a parent, I think you think, all right, I have kids, you know, time to go pack in on having a stylish car that's actually fun to own and just get something that I can, you know, let the little rugrats, you know, grind uh, goldfish into the carpets of. And that's actually not the case. We found that there are a number of stylish, fun cars that will also work for families. So what we did is we looked at um, 21 different car classes, and we looked for the cars with the best combination of safety and reliability ratings, interior um, passenger and cargo space, positive reviews from critics, and available family-friendly features. I mean, we found that, you know, there are some of the usual suspects on there, like the Honda Odyssey minivan and um, the Nissan Murano SUV. But you can also use, you know, a Kia Soul, which is a small hatchback, will also work pretty well for families. Um, And not just young families with kids in car seats, but also families with older kids because the Soul has this smartphone feature um, where parents can track where their teen drivers have driven, how fast they've gone, and they can get alerts if the car is driven past a certain time of night or outside of a certain area that they set. Um, then there's also a lot of other cars that you know parents will really enjoy owning but will also work for kids, like the Audi A7, which is a really distinctive-looking luxury large sedan. But it has features like, um, you know, in-car Wi-Fi, which, you know, kids would really enjoy on the road. You know, they can stream movies and things like that. Um, and then, you know, there are some other, you know, surprises there, too. You know, you can get into, you know, a Volvo XC90, which I think most people would look at and say, all right, an XC90, that's a luxury three-row SUV. Sure, that works for families. But it also has, you know, it's one of those cars that you're not going to be embarrassed to drive, say, your boss or a client around in either because it's very stylish um, with an incredibly you know, luxurious and opulent interior. So it's really the message to take away from these is first, you know, there's, there's a family car out there for every single budget. I mean, we looked at things from you know, subcompact SUVs all the way up to super large SUVs like the Cadillac Escalade and the GMC Yukon. Um, but then the other thing to remember, too, is you know, just because you've had kids, doesn't mean that you have to have, you know, the automotive equivalent of, you know, mom jeans and Crocs. You can still have something <laughs> cool that everybody's going to, like, but that you're going to enjoy owning and driving. That's also going to make your life easier as a parent. I mean, you guys know that I've got two small kids. So we did look at uh, family-friendly features beyond just a rear seat entertainment system. You know, we looked at stuff like one of my favorite features that I think is one of the best things that parents can spring for for themselves is proximity key in a car. And this is a system where the key can just stay in your pocket or in your bag. You walk up to the car, you touch it, and the car unlocks. When you're wrestling with, you know, toddlers in the grocery store parking lot, not having to try and put a, key, a kid down just to dig a key out is, you know, not only convenient, but it's potentially, you know, a safety feature as well because it allows you to keep your hand on the kid. Yeah. Um, we also looked at stuff like um, automatic tailgates where you just have to swipe your foot underneath a car's bumper to get the rear to open up. Again, this is something that really makes life a lot easier and more pleasant because, you know, being a parent's hard enough. Um, and But if you do drive your boss, you'd recommend vacuuming the goldfish out first, even if you have the, the Volvo, right? Um, even if you have the Volvo, although, you know, it's also nice to offer your bo- boss, you know, a sippy cup of milk if you've got one <laughs> hanging around in the back seat. If you'd like to join the conversation, the number 1-800-399-3566, 1-800-399-3566. You can send us an email, talk at mpbn.net, tweet at Main Calling, or post to our Facebook page. David Leach, what are you seeing in your office? What are the 
What kind of calls, what kind of complaints are coming in right now? Well, as far as car buying, we hear occasionally of buyer's remorse. When somebody goes to a car dealership, they buy a new vehicle on a Saturday, and on Monday they say, oh, my gosh, what have I done? You know, I, they didn't look into what that monthly payment was going to, how it was going to impact their, their family budget, saving for their kids' college, just buying groceries. And, and again, as we talked earlier, uh, monthly payments have gone from typically from 48 months to 60 to 72, so it's a long commitment. And, and so people are saying, you know, does Maine have a law, a three-day rescission period on automobile sales? We said, no. You know, you signed a contract and all that, so you have to think about it. And that was one of, Jennifer, that was one of the reasons why we wrote this book, you know, the Automobile Smart Buying and Financing Guide, so that Mainers could, you know, either get it online, credit.maine.gov, or 1-800-332-8529. And it shows them that step-by-step process. You know, I was thinking, after you asked me that question, when I was 24 years old, there was no internet that we had. I couldn't check out what a fair trade-in value of a vehicle was. I couldn't get online at Edmunds.com or NADA or whatever, KBB, and find out what a, what a fair sales price was. So it's, it's, everything has changed. So we tell people to press pause, think about it, don't hurry, and, and take the process. It's the second largest purchase that a person's going to make after their house, so it's not something that should be rushed into. All right. Well, we do have to take a quick break. When we come back, your comments and questions. This is Maine Calling. You make Maine Calling possible, as does Casella, committed to increasing recycling rates while reducing residential trash and landfill loads through zero-sort recycling. Casella, giving resources new life. We know that many of you have choices in what you listen to, and many of you would prefer to hear what you want, when you want. And while Maine news coverage is an important part of our Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and Weekend Edition programming, sometimes you just want to learn about what's happening between Kittery and Fort Kent, nothing else, but all at once and when you want. The answer is This Day in Maine, for streaming or podcast, available weekdays around 7 each evening at mpbn.net and also through iTunes. My first car was a stripped-down 1964 Ford Falcon. I'm Cokie Roberts. It was the most pathetic car you've ever seen. It had basically a radio and a heater. I had to teach my husband how to drive a stick shift. He he learned. (laughs) Imagine turning that car into the programs I love. For more information, visit mppn.net and click on the Car Talk Vehicle Donation Program button in the top left corner. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. Today we're talking cars. In the studio with me, David Leach, Principal Examiner with the Maine Bureau of Consumer Credit Protection and co-author of that agency's recently released and updated Down Easter Guide, Automobile Buying and Financing. On the line with us, J.B. Page Deaton, Automotive Editor for U.S. News and World Report, and John Paul, a spokesperson for AAA Northeast and a master mechanic. Join our conversation, 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mpbn.net, tweet at Maine Calling, or post to our Facebook page. We'll start with Jacko calling from Abbott. Hi, go ahead. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, me and my wife, we've been trying to uh, find a good used truck around the years of 2000, 2005 that could also fit our two children in. That We kind of like the frontier nissan or the tacomas but they're they're very expensive and i was wondering if you had any recommendations of trucks that would fit sort of that uh type of vehicle jamie i just have to ask how old are your kids are they still in car seats uh yeah we i have uh, a three-year-old and a six-year-old all right three-year-old and six-year-old that is a really tough um, tough bill to fit when you're looking at compact trucks like the Tacoma or, or the Frontier. I actually tested uh, the new Tacoma, which is not that much bigger than some of the years that you're looking at. I tested it about two weeks ago. Um, and interestingly, when my son's car seat was in the back seat, my husband, who granted is pretty tall, he's 6'1", um, could not comfortably fit in the passenger seat just because of the, the, my son's age. He's, he's two. The tilt on his car seat is still a little bit long. So, and you know, you've also noticed too; those tend to be very expensive trucks, um, particularly in this area where people use trucks for a lot um, of different jobs. What you might consider 
um, for the year that you're looking at, it's, it's a little bit bigger, but a Honda Ridgeline um, would work out pretty well for you. It's got a bigger back seat than both the Frontier and the Tacoma. Um, it can, it's, you know, it's just got, you know, the similar reliability ratings as a Tacoma does, um, but a little bit more space and a little bit more comfort. You can't get quite as long a bed with it as you could with, you know, a long bed Tacoma, um, but it should work for your family and they'll be a lot more comfortable in it, particularly as the kids get bigger um, and start, you know, requesting more leg room. Thanks, Jacko. Uh, and John, do you under, uh, do you agree? I, I agree. I think the Ridgeline is always a good choice. I wouldn't be afraid of looking at a, a Chevy half-ton pickup truck. Even though it's a full-size truck, it might be a little bit bigger than what you want. It's They still get pretty decent fuel economy. Look for rust. Rust is probably the biggest concern with those vehicles, both rusty body parts as well as rusty uh, fuel and brake lines. But, you know, once you get through that... It's not unusual to see some of these Chevy pickup trucks going 200 and 300,000 miles. So maybe you can find a 2002-2003 extended cab that's going to be able to accommodate the car seats in the back or maybe even a quad cab and have that shorter bed, the five-and-a-half or six-foot bed, still makes it pretty maneuverable. And uh, and they made a billion of them. So you could probably find one that is uh, in pretty good condition still with not a, not a million miles on it, but still pretty reliable. All right, Jacko, thanks for your question. We have an email here. I'm going to shoot this one to you, David, but it may be a question for John. Uh, This is from Diane. She writes, I have a 2003 hatchback with a seatbelt problem. Twice since I've owned the car in 2006, I've had to replace the driver's seat belt, the driver's seat belt, because it stopped latching. I brought it to the dealer both times for the replacement, Mazda, and was disappointed they held me responsible for the payment. I'm now faced with a third replacement of the same belt, and again, the dealer, as well as the company, is refusing to cover the cost, which is just under $200. I recognize that the car, as well as each replacement belt, is beyond warranty, but this seems to be an unusual problem, as well as a safety issue. Am I justified in feeling that the company should be responsible? Boy, my my go-to on an issue like that, as a Maine resident, my first call would be to the Maine Office of the Attorney General. Um, 1-800-436-2131. They can mediate that. They can look at that. And I don't know if the Maine Lemon Law applies, but it's certainly, it's a free call, and they could tell you, you know, what's going on with that, if there's a recall on it, and, and maybe mediate that between yourself and the dealership or the manufacturer. John, do you see that often where people have to replace the latch on a seatbelt multiple times? It's pretty unusual. I mean, most seatbelts will truly last the life of the vehicle. It's, again, pretty unusual that you'd have to do that multiple times. Now, I'm wondering is, you know, is it a contamination issue? Is it somebody who just, you know, leaves the windows open a lot and the mechanism gets really wet? Or uh, because you don't, you don't see that very often. Even I do car seat checks. So I go out and help people put uh, kids' car seats in. And, you know, I can, I can do a a bunch of cars, a lot of older cars, and every once in a while I come across a, a seatbelt that doesn't latch properly, but it's it's very unusual. And a lot of times if it's the mechanism itself won't lock up because the, the mechanism is, that keeps the belt from retracting isn't working, but if it's the buckle itself, a lot of times the buckle is just a contamination issue. So, But again, I would you expect something to last a certain amount of time, so sort of that uh, 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 warranty of merchantability you know you expect it to last a certain amount of time and it doesn't you know maybe there's something there on the other hand if i had to spend two hundred dollars every five years to be safe i guess it's worth it all right i have an email from paul which is related to a question i had jotted down before the show um this says in a whimsical moment i checked out tesla's website the high-end all-electric car i learned that tesla has established supercharger recharge stations across the country I was impressed and surprised at the number of them, including in Augusta and Portsmouth. Can these be used by all other electric cars? If not, how hard would it be to expand these to include the Nissan Leaf, or the Prius, etc.? And the question I wanted to add to that is I understand that Volvo is calling on standardized electric car charging stations. Uh, Jamie, is this something you've been following? Can other electric cars use the Tesla stations or only Tesla? And uh, is there a movement if, if they're not interchangeable? Do you think that pretty soon they will be? 
Well, I mean, Tesla has built these supercharging stations to promote Tesla. <laughs> that's, that's their goal with it. Um, you know, and they want to make sure that owning a Tesla um, is something that more and more people can do. So really their goal um, up in, was that a car would be able, you know, one of their cars would be able to jump to drive up the East Coast. Um, and always have access to a charging station. So, you know, I drive fairly frequently between New Hampshire and D.C., and at almost every single rest stop you see a Tesla charging station. If your electric car, um, you know, has the same components and can actually, you know, link up and use it, then, yeah, anybody can use these charging stations. There's no, you know, as far as I know, there is no, like, you know, Tesla code that you have to plug in for it. Um, you know, that said, there are a lot of other companies that also have charging stations that you can use up and down in the East Coast. And actually, some retailers are getting into the game as well. Um, Best Buy has at some of their locations charging stations because they want you to come in and browse and maybe, you know, buy a new phone or something like that. Um, and Starbucks and a couple of other restaurants have started putting charging stations in front of some of their locations. But, um, so you, are the plugs actually interchangeable? For the most part, I mean, they use a fairly standardized, um, you know, a standardized plug for them. So, yeah, you should be able to, um, you know, a Nissan Leaf should be able to use a Tesla charging station. Um, the only time where you kind of have an issue with charging stations is super fast charging stations versus, you know, where you might plug in at home. If you want to plug in your electric car at home and, you've, you know, you can use sort of a, you know, a standard outlet, most cars come with a converter so you can use it. Um, that will take a really long time. You can buy your own for home use supercharging station. I think they tend to run um, around $2,000. I mean, John Paul might correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, and they have to be installed you know, by an electrician, and they allow you to charge faster you know, within 20 minutes or so, or at least you know, cutting down the charging time to, I think, around four hours, depending on what kind of setup you get. John Paul, that sound right? It, so, it sounds right. The, the level two charging, which is your typical, you know, sort of like an electric dryer plug type of outlet, those are the ones that would take, you know, four to six hours to recharge your typical electric car. The superchargers are these high voltage DC chargers. And the last I knew, that was not a standardized plug. The level one and level two plugs were, the level three was sort of a little bit different. So you can get level three charging in a in a Kia Soul electric, and you get the level three charging in a Tesla. I'm not sure it uses the same style plug. It very well may be. I just haven't kept up on it because, frankly, I don't have a Tesla. <laughs> then we're going to go back to the phones. And Thea calling from Bath. Hi, Thea. Go ahead. Hi. I was wondering if people have been uh, doing any uh, checking about um, wheelchair accessible uh, vehicles. Um, and a uh, list of affordable ones. Uh, okay, are you uh, are you thinking, Thea, about a, a, what are you looking for? Do you want something that's more like a van, more like a car? What size? Uh, well, I've had ones that are um, the minivans uh, that have uh, fold-out uh, ramps in them and that have been um, modified to kneel down, they, they lower, so they're lower to the uh, uh, ground, so the ramp isn't too steep, um, and then can be modified for, with hand controls and things like that for people who use wheelchairs and have limited um, uh, abilities to steer and uh, uh, drive. Um, but I haven't seen anything with people who've tested them and uh, recommend the better ones and uh, what are better features and uh, things like that. I just didn't know whether... Uh, okay. Jamie, sounds like a story idea for U.S. News. Yeah, we've actually, we have done, you know, stories and lists on cars, you know, with people for limited mobility. Um, and what we really do see is it seems like for wheelchair accessibility, a minivan tends to be your best bet, um, and you will have to get some dealer modifications um, with it. But there is, you know, a whole um, organization of car dealers that, you know, focus on modifying cars for, for, you know, to make them accessible. You can also get, you know, if you want something slightly smaller, um, I have seen where a Honda Element, which is unfortunately no longer in production, um, but I've seen modified Honda Elements, which is sort of a low-to-the-ground, boxy crossover, um, that have been modified for wheelchair use, and those work out fairly well. Um, and then I've also seen a um, modified PT Cruiser, which is, again, no longer in production, um, but it's a, a small car that is easy enough to modify so that, you know, it's, 
that um, you know users can put in a ramp and have that kind of accessibility that you really need with a wheelchair. Are there some, Jamie, that are more um, reasonably priced than others? Well, I mean, we're talking here, you know, you're going to have to pay for the cost of modifying them, which is, of course, going to add to the cost. So if you can save a little bit on the actual purchase of the car so you can spend on the modification, um, I think that you, you know, end up doing pretty well there. So again, like if you're looking at, you know, something that's a little bit less expensive, something like, um, you know, the Chrysler PT Cruiser, which tends to have fairly good used car pricing, you know, it's not that expensive, um, would be one to look at. The Honda Element um, again, you'd be getting a used one, but that's much less expensive than a brand new um, minivan. You could also look at modifying a, a Mazda 5, which is a smaller size minivan, which is not only um, generally going to be less expensive when you buy it up front, but compared to other minivans, the Mazda 5 has really low ownership costs over time. Um, so that's another thing to look out for. John, Paul, do you have any thoughts about when you're modif- modifying a car or a truck? Any Any things to keep in mind um, for safety and uh, efficiency? Well, for, first off, you, you go with companies that have been around, that have been doing this for a while. I think one of the one of the ones that uh, comes to mind is Braun. Uh, I think it's B-R-A-U-N. And they're, one, they're, they're a really big um, upfitter of this, these types of both hand controls and ramps. Uh, the other thing is, like Jamie mentioned, reliability. You may find that a Honda Odyssey or a Toyota Sienna van, just because it's historically a more reliable vehicle than maybe a, a Chrysler minivan, might be a better place to start. So you're ending up you're ending up a little bit above uh, quality-wise than some of the others. Uh, the other thing is. All the major vehicle manufacturers, whether it's uh, Toyota or Ford, Ford just uh, Ford had a presentation at the Chicago Auto Show. I think it was something like Ford Life Rolls On or something like that, and it was all about some Ford vehicles that could be easily adapted for for wheelchair uh, transportation use. And also, there there when it comes to cost, there are a lot of different uh, grant opportunities that are available to try to help people with some of these uh, some of these. Uh, you know, extra expenses that would go along with the vehicle. David, yeah, just to add with the, with the cost there, Medicare and Medicaid sometimes will pay for some modifications to automobiles, and, you know, for the, the uh, VA will also pay for some modifications to automobiles. So there are grants available for people um, to make this a little bit more affordable. And, David, if someone is thinking that they're going to save some money by buying a used vehicle and, and then have it um, outfitted for access what kind of tips do you have, not only for somebody who might um, use a wheelchair, but for anybody who's looking at a used vehicle, what do you want them to keep in mind? I think the first thing is, is like, do your research. You know, you're talking about a Chrysler or a PT Cruiser or a Honda Element, which I've been driving for the last 10 years, and I know how reliable and bulletproof Honda can be. So, you know, you get on the Internet, you find your price, but you look at reliability because that's a big cost to have something converted if you buy a a used element, and I don't know how many thousands of dollars this would cost. You want to put that investment into something that's going to last, that's not going to rust out, or the tranny's not going to go, or something like that. So I just say, you know, take your time, get on the Internet, and research. All right. Well, we do have to take another quick break. When we come back, your com- more of your comments and questions. This is Maine Calling. You make Maine Calling possible, as does Lee Honda in Auburn, featuring the 2016 Honda HRV crossover. Inventory and pricing at leauto.com. I'm Renee Montaigne. Every night at midnight, I drive my 30-year-old sedan to NPR West to host Morning Edition. There are some benefits to keeping crazy hours. For instance, no traffic jams and plenty of parking. There's nothing like a trusty car to get you where you're going. But when you're ready to part with it, did you know that you can turn your car into the programs you love? Donate it to us. Here's how. For more information, visit mpbn.net and click on the Car Talk Vehicle Donation Program button in the top left corner. We'd also like to thank Michelle of Oakland, Maine, for the donation of a 2004 Volkswagen Jetta. This week on Speaking in Maine, the 2016 Camden Conference, A New Africa. Africa is an extraordinary continent with extraordinary people. There is a spirit that just soars, a unique, funky mix of friendship and feistiness, all mapped against an often baffling backdrop of 
persistent corruption. All this week at 1 o'clock on Speaking in Maine, here on Maine Public Radio. And join us this afternoon for a talk by Ms. Ka Walla. She's a Cameroonian grassroots activist and former candidate for Cameroon president, speaking on We the People of Africa, Facing Crisis and Opportunities. Coming up in 20 minutes here on Maine Public Radio. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on the program, answers to your car repair and car buying questions. In the studio with me, David Leach with the Maine Bureau of Consumer Credit Protection. On the line with us, John Paul, spokesperson for AAA Northeast and a master mechanic. And Jamie Page Deaton is the automotive editor for U.S. News and World Report. Join the conversation, 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mpbn.net. Tweet at Maine Calling or post to our Facebook page. We're going to go to Phil calling from Portland. Hi, Phil. Go ahead. Yes. Hello. Um, I wanted to alert Mainers to the fact that driving an electric car is quite practical, uh, and the technology is at the point where it really works well, even in Maine's climate. I've been driving a Nissan Leaf for four years now, and I've done the math on my lease payments, my down payment, and the um, and the electricity to charge the car, and it's costing me about $0.04 cents a mile to operate the Nissan LEAF compared to about $0.15 cents per mile for the average um, gas-powered vehicle on the road today. All right. And Thanks for sharing that. And, and we have a lot more options than we ever did, don't we, Jamie? Yeah, now, you know, today's car buyer, particularly if you're willing to look at, you know, alternative fuel cars, you have so many things to choose from. Um, You really don't have to just be stuck, you know, with the internal combustion engine. You can get, you know, your your gas (coughs) engine, you can get a diesel engine, you can get a gas-electric hybrid. Um, You can look at cars that run on compressed natural gas, um, and you can look at, you know, the straight electric cars or even an extended-range electric car, which is actually kind of my favorite because I suffer from an extreme case of range anxiety when it comes to electric cars. I'm always worried about running out of a charge um, and not having a place uh, to plug in and then having to wait, you know, 20, 20 to 30 minutes for the, uh, char- the car to actually get charged up. So there really are a lot of options available. And actually, if you go to, um, you know, usnews.com slash cars, we will, you know, we rank all the hybrid and electric cars that are out there against each other. And we also compare them to traditionally fueled cars like gas and diesel powered cars. So you can see just, you know, whether or not this kind of car really makes sense for your lifestyle. But it's great to hear from Phil that it's working out for him. I know the leases on things like the Nissan Leaf, uh, the Fiat 500e, um, and the Chevy Volt and, you know, other electric cars, pretty much with the exception of the Tesla, um, leases on electric cars right now are very, very good deals. Phil, thank you for calling in and sharing your experience. We're going to go to Cape Elizabeth and Dan. Hi, Dan. Go ahead. Hi. I have one of our cars is 10 years old. I took it in to have some work looked at, and they said, yeah, well, this is what it needs, but because of rust and whatnot, we're going to have to do, we're going to have to replace twice as much to get the work done. So looking at a lot of expense. So is there some age that, it makes sense to get rid of cars. David, this is a question all of us face at some point. It's a fantastic question. And I think because all vehicles are different, there's no one right or wrong answer. Um, I know when I bought my Honda Element 10 years ago, I did my research and I said, I announced I'm going to drive this car into the ground or until it starts costing me too much. And that's our good old down east common sense. But what is too much? Well, you know, I've had it for I've had it for ten years. I've put very little money into it. Um, I was thinking about buying. Uh, it all depends on the vehicle, Jennifer. I mean, if if you've got a if you've got a I won't pick any nameplates, but an American vehicle, and after four or five years, the warranties run out, and you're putting in fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a year, it might be time to get rid of it. If you have a bulletproof vehicle that's going forever and ever, then you can keep it. But a car is a depreciating value asset. So it's going to lose money anyway. But what you try to do is you try to reduce that financial exposure and and you decide when it's costing me too much to keep it on the road. That's when you get either a brand new one or a new to you used one. And John Paul, is this the question that mechanics get, the big question you get the most often, when do I know? It really is. It's one of those things that even when you're putting, you know, $1,500 into a a car a year, if if the car is 
safe, serviceable, and relatively dependable, that today is probably the equivalent of only, you know, four or so monthly payments. So if your car is paid off, putting $1,500 or $2,000 into it a year might actually be a pretty good investment. It's really the rust, it's really the structural stability of the car that really can uh, really point you in the direction of where to go. You can have a car that needs some minor repairs, but if it's getting to the point where it's structurally unsound, and we're starting to see that in some cars, uh, there, there are a few to look at, you know, Nissan Altima is one that the bottom end of the cars just rust out and they become very, very unserviceable at that point and it's time to get rid of them. As a general rule on an older car, if you're putting half the cost of the value of the car into it, so if you have a $6,000 car and you're putting $3,000 worth of repairs into it, yeah, maybe you ought to think it's time to it's time to send that one down the road and consider something that is going to be a little bit newer, a little bit more dependable, and probably a lot safer. All right. We have a, a Facebook post from Diego. He writes, I just purchased a used car. I also got a warranty about which I'm having serious second thoughts. Is it possible to cancel these? I feel taken in. Should I? Now, we can't talk with Diego, David, um, so we don't know what his warranty says, but I'm sure you get this question. We do. And this is one of the questions you're faced at in the so-called closing room at the dealership. Um, It used to be many years ago, it was the pinstriping, it was the undercoating and all that. Now it's the extended warranty plan. And the big question you have to ask is, who is offering this plan? And, And what is covered? And is there an escape clause in there? So it's all really, it's really contractual. Um, The Office of the Attorney General, they handle warranty issues. Those all go over to them. But you should always, whether you're signing a loan document, a promissory note, or an extended warranty coverage, you need to read what you're signing. Is it it probable, though, that once he's signed it, he's in? He's not going to be able to get out? He may be in, and it may be non-cancelable. It's Mm -hmm. possible, Mm Jenny. Okay. Well, we're going to go to Newburgh and Alan. Hi, Alan. Go ahead. Hi, how are you? Great. Yes, I have a comment. That, uh, a guy called up there a little while ago about uh, a Nissan uh, Frontier and a Toyota Tacoma, stuff like that, and he was looking for legroom. And uh, I have a Nissan Titan 2005, and it's been one big tough truck, and it's... Uh, Got the four door. It's got the hundred and eighty degree door. Oh, Alan, I think we've lost you, but I think he's calling Jamie to say that he loves his Titan truck. Yeah, and the Titan, the Titan is the next size up in truck from Nissan, and it sort of goes with you know what John was was recommending. You know, if you're having trouble fitting car seats into a compact truck. Um, because those do tend to be pretty small, um, going up to a midsize like the Honda Ridgeline or a full-size like a Chevy Silverado, Ford F-150, or Nissan Titan um, is a good way to turn your truck into more of a family vehicle. I mean, for many years, my family had a, a Chevy Silverado 1500, and it was a four-door. Um, and really, you know, those first two rows were very similar to what you would see in a you know, similar vintage Chevy Tahoe. Um, you know, not quite as much room. The back seat, you know, was a little bit more upright, but you could still very comfortably put car seats. It was wide enough for actually two car seats and one adult to fit back there. Um, so if you're, you know, if you're, if you're got a family and you, and you want a truck, um, you know, fitting it all into a compact truck can be a little bit difficult. So looking at something larger uh, can, can often make a lot of sense. All right. I want to ask you about something, John Paul. I was reading a blog this morning, which uh, struck me as so true. The blog was called The Endangered Species, The Spare Tire. Why do we not have uh, spare tires in our cars anymore? And uh, what's going on? Well, it depends who you believe, but, uh, you know, some of it is weight savings. The more weight you save in a vehicle, the better the fuel economy is. And when the engineers look at trying to save weight, the spare tire is an easy, easy target. You know, the spare tire, the wheel, the jack, the lug wrench, you know, there's an easy 50 pounds to take out of the trunk of the car. Other times, it's just a matter of space. I was driving a the the new Mazda Miata, which is a, a great little convertible uh Pretty good-sized tires on it. You'll look in the little teeny tiny trunk, and well, you're not going to put a spare tire in there. So some of it's some of it's just a matter of you can't put them in there. Some of it's a matter of uh, weight, and sometimes it's truly cost. Uh, you look at the cost of what a spare tire and wheel cost versus an inflation kit. There's just they're they're saving money. Uh, 
we saw actually more cars a few years ago that didn't have spare tires than we do today uh, because the American public is saying, you know, we want our spare tire back. Give us our spare tire back. In fact, at AAA, when someone calls in for road service, the last I knew, we have a list of about 120 or so vehicles that may not have a spare tire. So when someone calls up and has a flat tire in their car, it may turn into a tow and not just a flat tire re- uh, replacement, and we send out the appropriate vehicle for that. Would you recommend that if your car, if you are listening to this and go out and, and look at the back of your car, realize you don't have a spare tire, that you might want to buy one and put it in your trunk? It's a pretty good idea because I have gotten in a few situations, and sometimes with test cars that don't have spare tires because they, they have you know, spare tire inflation kits and hit a pothole or something and damage a sidewall of a tire in that spare inflation kit uh, is not going to help. And that's uh, the, the next step from the spare tire kit is the 800 number to call for help. So if I had room to put even a space saver spare tire in, one of those little donut style tires, I would put one in. But I have to tell you, I guess because I'm a little bit older and I forgot about it, we had to replace my wife's car this year and we replaced it with a Volkswagen Beetle convertible. And I was sitting there kind of reading the owner's manual. I'm probably the only one who ever does that. And I thought, does this car have a spare? I actually went out and looked just to make sure, and it did help her about it. All right. Well, um, Jamie, I want to ask you about the VW recall. What's the latest on this? What, it was such big news last year, and it seems we haven't heard anything in a while. What's going on for all the owners of the um, the sport that you know the diesel sport wagons and those cars? Yeah, well, I think VW is probably pretty happy that we haven't heard a lot about this in a while. I mean, I think they're hoping that, you know, the, the furor will die down around it. But there is actually a very good reason why it has we haven't heard a whole lot, and that's because not a whole lot has happened. Um, VW did go and um, give $500 gift cards to owners who, um, you know, who chose to take them up on that offer, um, $500 Visa gift cards, and I believe a $500 uh, VW gift card that could be used for dealership services or towards the purchase of a new VW. Um, at this point, you know, there's some back and forth between VW um, and uh, the EPA on whether or not they have a fix in place. Um, I know some publications like Consumer Reports have done some testing on possible fixes. But at this point, you know, VW owners should really be thinking about um, if they can, maybe just sitting tight with their VWs and seeing what the company actually comes up with in terms of a fix. But right now, there's not really been any new news to report. All right. We have a tweet here. I'll send this one to you, John Paul, from Twitter. Uh, how do repair costs on electric and hybrid cars compare to regular cars? Is, that, is it easy to categorize it that way, or is it, does it depend on the car? It really does depend on the car. Some normal maintenance things, like brakes, Electric cars hardly ever wear out brakes because when you take your foot off the accelerator, the car slows down. So brake life is is really good. No regular maintenance things like oil changes and coolant changes, although some electric cars do use some form of coolant. So generally, electric car maintenance is far less until it becomes time to replace the batteries. Then it gets very, very expensive. So it depends on, it depends on the life of the car and where you are in that sort of life cycle. The same thing sort of happened with hybrid cars cars too. Originally when the Prius came out, uh, people thought about, well, there's not a lot of maintenance involved even though it's a a gasoline electric car, but the maintenance is very low and the original Prius battery was around seven or eight thousand dollars. Now you can buy a replacement Prius battery for a couple thousand dollars. So when that battery gets to be 10 years old and has 300,000 miles on it and it's about worn out, well, the the price becomes much better. You know, expensive cars like the Tesla, uh, they have some pretty good warranties, and a lot of people lease them anyway. And you know, at the end of the lease, they look to trade something in. So uh, it it really depends, but they can't really be uh, they can't really be broken down uh, apples and apples because they are such different cars. Just a couple of minutes left in the show. I want to ask one of the big questions that we usually get on the program and haven't gotten today. And I'll ask you, David, is there a time of year that's better to buy a car than other times of the year? Well. I, I always say at the end of the month, you know, the last business day of the month, salespeople are on quotas. And I bought my last two vehicles, my son's 2016 Jeep Cherokee Latitude on Halloween and uh, played two dealerships against the other. I think um, February, the last day of February, because it's Washington's birthday month is great. And I wonder what the other two car gurus would say about the last day of the year as far as inventory reduction. What do you think on that? Jamie? 
Well, we've actually um, seen a lot of data around this, and the best time to buy a car is the week between Christmas and New Year's. That is end of the year. End of the year. It's when you absolutely see the lowest prices um, because, again, dealers are trying to get rid of their inventory. But the other thing to remember, too, is traffic is down to dealerships in that week. Everybody's visiting family. Everybody's feeling a little bit poorer from the holidays, so people aren't exactly in the, new, in the mood to go out and buy a new car. Um, so that week is really the best week um, to buy a car from you know, a pricing perspective. You can also tend to, you know, it, talking about the end of the month is always a, is always a good time to buy. But just beware that, um, you know, you can make some other factors work in your favor. So, for example, um, you know, there was a big snowstorm down, you know, further south from us um, that actually drove down car sales for January for a lot of dealerships. Going in the weekend after a big snowstorm when their traffic has been negatively impacted the weekend before and they lost a lot of sales, you know, towards the end of the month is a good time to go. The other thing to really sort of be wary of, though, is if the end of the month falls with a holiday, um, don't be too, um, I guess, bedazzled by the deals that they might be offering you. So if you're coming in on, you know, on a holiday weekend where they're having a big sale and it's the end of the month, um, they might be saying, oh, we've got our big President's Day deal or sale or whatever. Um, but you just want to double-check, hop online, know what a fair price for that car is anyway, so you're not just dazzled by the price you know, that, oh, it's a sale price without actually checking. Is it actually a good price, or are they just calling it a sales price? Oh, my goodness. Well, that's the last word today. This hour always goes so quickly when you guys are on. Thanks so much, Jamie Page Deaton, the automotive editor for U.S. News & World Report, John Paul, spokesperson for AAA Northeast and a master mechanic, and David Leach, principal examiner with the Maine Bureau of Consumer Credit Protection, co-author of that agency's Down Easter Guide, Automobile Buying and Financing. You can find that guide by going to www.credit.maine.gov. Jonathan Woodward ran the board today, the executive producer of Maine Calling's Jonathan Smith. Tomorrow on the program, Shakespeare in the 21st Century. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.